I'm good, man. I'm just, uh, this is day five of my six podcasts and seven days death camp. <laughs> it's sick, man. Yeah, no. Yeah, it's... I got to catch up on what you've been doing, but there's a lot to be said for that kind of uh, resilience. Yeah, how? I mean, how are you doing? I'm just super excited to do this because, uh, congrats on this book, by the way, because this is, I just think it's phenomenal. I mean, it's just, it hits sort of like every single subject, you know, spiritually and topically that I'm kind of, that I've been really ruminating on. And I think it's, it's just like the right thing for, it's just like perfect timing. So yeah. How's expat going all by the way? It's going great. I mean, this was like an interesting, uh, like thought experiment because, you know, Curtis is kind of like a virtual unknown, at least like in, you know, uh, like, I mean, other than the work that he did for, uh, I had something that's like more in the lane of mere fashion and, uh, like, you know, so the audience for it is like the, that's a pleasure community is like basically all the people that he's been good to his entire life who bought a book and our own like built in audience. And the fact that it's sold so well, I think is a pretty good rubric for us um because again i mean there wasn't like nobody read a word of the book it means a lot that uh you did and uh means a lot to come on contain actually i really admire what you're doing here oh thank you i appreciate it hey hey curtis how's it going hey what's up barry how you doing man i'm good i'm gonna turn on the video for one second and then turn it back off just for like connection issues if you want to go video though that's totally cool um, yeah, so Curtis, Curtis Eggleston just entered the room. Uh, he has a excellent new book out called Hollow Nacelle. Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, I've been pronouncing it Hollow Nacelle, just Nacelle. Nacelle. So I hope it's pronounced that way. Okay, great. Yeah, and I, I should know this because I did the, the voiceover for the trailer of the book. <laughs> but yeah, yeah I, I, me and Manuel were just talking how... You know, you, you kind of keep a very low cryptic profile. You live in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I read that you are you educate kids and used to be a firefighter. And so when I picked up this book, you know, after doing that, um, I really didn't know what to expect. I just sort of got into it. And it, it was kind of like an addictive rush from beginning to end because I felt so many of my own feelings and thoughts and ideas explained in this like incredibly beautiful uh intricate way so i just wanted to thank you you for writing this book i think it's the perfect book for this time wow thank you for the kind words Uh, i really appreciate that man i'm really glad you enjoyed it Uh, i will say i will clear up that i wasn't exactly a firefighter uh i did fight fires so i guess that technically makes me a firefighter but I do have uh, some friends who are firefighters full time. I wouldn't exactly compare that. I was learning how to fight fires with an NGO in uh, Mato Grosso, Brazil. Uh, I got sort of an, I, like a paid, not exactly an internship. Um, my boss was hoping I would work there full time, but I didn't. The visa stuff didn't get cleared, and there's a little bit of miscommunication. But uh, I, I did learn how to do something called blacklining. Um, there's kind of these eternal fires in Mato Grosso that just burned forever. I don't know if you guys have kept any track of the fires in Brazil, the Amazon's always burning. Yeah. The Mata in the center is always burning. Like 
it's bad, man. Like kids are coughing all the time, just smoking their lungs. Um, and so I was working with a sustainable agriculture company and part of that entailed fighting fires. So they don't have any water. They don't have slurry bombers or anything. So what you do is you burn about a kilometer strip, a black line, linea negra, and uh, you read the wind. So when the fire hits that spot, there's nothing left to burn. Um, it's pretty interesting. It's fun stuff. But anyway, I wouldn't call myself a full-time firefighter. I dabbled. Okay. <laughs> you know, you don't have to self-efface. <laughs> you get it. No, yeah, but you know, that's still, uh, that's still pretty. That's still pretty badass, if you ask me. Yeah. That's a, a you know that's a lot more than than most uh, creative types do. You know, they lounge around and order <laughs> takeout. You're actually in Brazil, and uh, one of the things you know, you used to live in Los Angeles, and the and the way that you sort of describe the kind of spiritual or anti-enlightening rot that you felt from being sort of like in this proximity to social media, to this kind of like algorithmic mediation between uh, the digital realm and sort of trends and the way it sort of flows downstream into, into baseline culture in these, in these large metropolitan, metropolitan places. I mean, that that's kind of why I live in Texas, you know, and it just, it really speaks to me as well. So yeah. How long did you live in LA for? I mean, I'm from LA. So, Oh, so you were there for years and years. Yeah. And didn't you say you did, uh, you did music, right? You, you, you've been a musician forever and then you decided to get into podcasting instead. Yeah. (laughs) Was that, was that the main driver that like, like, did you have a sense? You said you related to the book. Was that like a similar driver for you to get out of LA, get out of town? Was that anti-enlightenment that you felt? Yeah. I mean, you know, it was sort of during that, the whole lockdown. And I thought, I just felt, you know, just to sort of tie back in uh, some of the topics from the book. um, Yeah, it it was like this, it was this anti-enlightenment feeling of just, you know, because we were sort of relegated to our computers more and our homes, like the distinction between the sort of online world and the sort of like a digital phenomena and the real world just started blurring deeper and deeper. And it's really difficult as an artist or a writer um, to, to, to like to create those kind of boundaries if you're so stuck in it. Like I really do think people should leave, you know, and, and consider leaving and, and going somewhere else only because, you know, it's very difficult to, to see the world when you're sort of stuck within within the bubble i agree i i had a hard time i mean it was a worthy three year i think i lived there two and a half years or so and um the construction of the book the whole idea of something being a hollow nacelle is just i guess how i felt about the city in general um just to say that if you do fill that nacelle mentally then it's a worthy there are worthy pursuits there like there's a worthy rise but it, it did stop feeling like real life to me for a while or after a while, just, just that there wasn't that much more that I could get out of the relationships there. They, um, I don't know. I guess that sounds, that sounds weird to get out of the relationships. It stopped feeling like real life. And that's why I really like South America. Everything feels, um, more colorful, more vibrant, more intense and, uh, more, more lively. 
I think there's less of a blurred distinction between social media and real life. Yeah. I would live in Florida if I could just take like a bullet train to like New York and be there like in an hour or something. Uh, like for sure. It's just, um, I don't know. I, I can't really speak to Austin. I haven't spent any time there, but yeah, that part of the book, that theme really spoke to me. Of, I guess wanting to, uh, leave society. Uh, but like, uh, um, I think about it with New York all the time. Like it, it's definitely good to get out for like, like periodically. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's kind of, I mean, in the book, you, you, you know, you sort of like, uh, one of the kind of themes of this, of like this whole thing is this concept of psychic pain. And you talk a lot about, or in the book discusses themes of social media, fame, celebrity culture, Western medicine, there's like pharmacology. Uh, and actually with, in the expat presser, it says blurred distinctions between the digital and physical mediations of self. Uh, self is, you know, society is kind of reconstructing itself right now in this way that is, incre- you know, where, where this sort of like um, digital space is, is imprinting itself on what it means to be human, what it means to be a person. And when you talk about leaving and going to Brazil and feeling that sort of like uh, that kind of thing of stuff not really feeling real in L.A., I think it's really good to live in a base culture. And, and you actually talk a little bit about how the quality of life in Sao Paulo is much worse. Like, um, I just got back from Alaska. I was helping my mom. And, you know, like so much of their life in Fairbanks, like my family's life is predicated on this notion that like it gets 40 below zero there. And if right. you don't, um, if somebody doesn't, you know, clear off the top of the roof, like it will collapse. So instead of there being this kind of like um, simulacra based obsession with self and uh, and image and it, it becomes this thing where like, no, actually, if you don't get on top of that roof and, and shovel the snow off, you're going to fucking die. So there, so, <laughs> so I, I really if you if you want to speak on that. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think it's Sao Paulo is sort of a, is sort of a middle ground, I think, between Fairbanks, Alaska and Los Angeles. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of social, there's a lot of celebrity in Sao Paulo, but it's just different. It's not on that international scale. There's much less money involved and, um, there's not exactly a middle class here. So it, it feels different. It could be because I'm not from here that it feels different, um, more stimulating, more tolerable. Um, it could be that I felt like more of an outsider in Los Angeles, whereas here my outsidership is obvious accepted because I'm a gringo. So it feels, it feels different or for, to me, it feels different. My, idea of myself is more definable when I'm in another country and it's more definable for other people. So it, it actually can be advantageous if someone puts me in a box as, as this gringo who then, you know, I'm, Oh, I'm actually a writer. Oh, I lived in Mato Grosso. Like I have a little Brazilian experience too. It it could be, I don't know, um, easier for me to define myself and therefore more comfortable. 
but uh, I do even get sick of the city sometimes. Like I think I, I, I know I wrote in that interview, uh, I wrote a lot of this book in the little chalet outside of Embudas Archis and there was no snow to shovel off of the roofs, but there, we didn't have a mirror. I was living with um, my then girlfriend, now wife named Zion. And uh, we didn't have a mirror. Like <laughs> we didn't have Wi-Fi. We didn't have service. And that was, that's like the complete opposite, you know, where it's, it's like, I mean, if you're talking about self, you don't even have a mirror. You're just eating off right off the banana tree in your yard. Uh, we had Tegu lizards, um, which are like, someone told me on Instagram, I filmed one and put it on my story later. And someone said that the Tegu is the only lizard, the only reptile that can show affection, maybe the only lizard maybe the only reptile. I don't know if that's true or not, but I thought that was cool. Anyway, that connection with, with nature is definitely different. Um, I also have another friend who's extremely athletic from Colorado. His older sister uh, raced the Iditarod and the first year she was to do it. She did it, but she was the only rookie to finish. And as a girl, that's pretty badass. Uh, that Alaska life, like she raised her whole sled dog team and now she's like a pilot, like that Alaska life. I definitely envy it sometimes, but like by the time I was done, we spent about three months in Embudas Archis. By the time I was done with that and we got, we came back to Sao Paulo, like it was a relief to be back in the city to, you know, not have to walk 45 minutes to the store to, uh, you know, just have a little more access. So I think, I think one thing that I like is the change of it and having the middle ground of it. Um, you know, there's lots of, of fun to be had in LA, but if you spend too much time there, it can get, uh, I don't know, degrading <laughs> at some level, yeah. just like anywhere. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, that's funny. You bring up dog mushing. My grandfather used to, used to, used to be a dog musher and he was a, also a bush pilot too. Uh, but no, that, that's actually, that's super fascinating because on, on one hand, you know, you have this you have the experience of being in the city, you sort of, and, you know, so much of the book, you know, it starts off with musicians and they're sort of like, you know, kind of scheming. And there's this real sort of like temporality diversion between what's actually going on and the kind of uh, mediated delusions within the, the main character's heads. And, you know, like I remember being a musician in, in touring you know, back before social media was such a large function of, of, of life. And, you know, there could, you, you could have distance. Like when I was playing in bands, I was like, why do I, why do I need an Instagram account? Why do I need a MySpace or a Facebook? Like my band has an account. Like I don't, I could just be some vaguely anonymous person, but which I find really interesting because you're so difficult to access online. Like there's very little information about you but it's that slow burn uh that i that you actually you guys actually talk about that i think is what uh, like i think that at last everything like i really don't believe social media numbers mean as much as people really think they are i know i agree yeah 100 percent. they're almost worthless i mean like uh yeah i mean uh, Curtis is an excellent case in point. Um, like I said, it, I feel like it shouldn't uh, sell that much, but like it has, and it like kind of like exceeded our expectations. And like, 
um, I don't know. I, I mean, honestly, I'm a bit stumped. I'm still processing it, trying to like figure out what it means exactly. Like what appetite did we fulfill? <laughs> um, but like, uh, it's a great like transition into fall number, uh, novel, which I think is like, I'm kind of like superstitious about it finding me. I think it's kind of, you know, cosmically interesting that the book that was sort of all about fame and social media numbers and the pitfalls of that actually sort of translated to being a, a, a success for, for expat and for, for Curtis. And, you know, I think that's like, I, I don't know, like that just sort of to me speaks to some feeling that I've had that I see people just sort of like they're caught up in this, um, in this kind of like psychic, uh, self-optimizing prison chamber where they can't, they can't get, they can't like, it's like inconceivable that you wouldn't have to be pushing something constantly, uh, in order for it to resonate with people. And this is something I think about a lot too. I think, I think power is overrated. I think resonance is, is ultimately much more important. And expat is, is a really good example of that. Like you guys don't have a huge social media presence, but like amongst people who know you're one of the more like widely regarded and respected, um, pub, like contemporary fiction, pub, uh, publishing, uh, companies. I wouldn't call you well, a company, right? Like that's, that's, not yeah. yeah. I mean, it's very, it's very populist, uh, uh, I guess, so like in, by nature, um, it's kind of like this, like behemoth I've built that is like abstracted from me in a weird way. I put up all, like all kinds of like barriers between myself and it, but like, you know, um, it's, it's hard to be, uh, to also have like a personal account and like occasionally like say something on there definitely kind of like uh triggers like my schizo impulse or something uh i feel like like the wizard of oz on the expat account but yeah i mean like word of mouth is a powerful thing and uh like i guess um like yeah i mean expat's popular i know it because i like hear people talk about it and they always know what it is um cultural visibility i think we achieved like a while ago um as far as power i don't know maybe that's next Maybe Curtis uh, will bring us to the gates. Oh, uh, man. I mean, one thing, one of the reasons I really liked Expat and I was attracted to Manuel's style, although I didn't even know it was Manuel, I just saw the Expat page, was that there were a lot of people who, you know, might not be published in other places. And Manuel really saw something beautiful about their writing, even if it was just like a, like a glimmer. Um, and that gives people the confidence to continue and like keep working hard because nowadays it's really hard to to make something and especially like writing because in general it's not as popular as say music or other mediums um although i think it might be getting more popular in a lot of ways anyway i wasn't tapped into like the twitter writing nature of things i just kind of did it by myself and um it was cool to see to see manuel really putting every piece of work that he published on a pedestal and uh, he was a great hype man. I thought that was cool. I liked I liked that energy because there's a lot. It's it's you get you get shut down sometimes for really saying something was cool. Like if you really love something and you put yourself you put yourself out there nowadays by saying that um, because there's such a there's a you know you're supposed to have a high taste level all the time. And I, I think that sometimes just having an instinctual love 
for literature, for example, is is admirable. Right. No, I, I completely agree. I think, you know, giving things its its own space and its own attention. I mean, there's a real way to synthesize yourself into a greater project or a sort of like greater cosmology. And that's kind of, that's something that really, I think, resonates with me because, you know, every single episode I do, I, I try to make it, I try to give it as much detail and as attention as I can. And it doesn't matter, you know, if the person is like really well known or nobody knows who they are, because at the end of the day, it's like, if you genuinely feel that love and that connection with what people are doing, like the way I sort of felt that connection with your book, um, it just, you know, like those sort of questions don't really matter. And, you know, I used to see in music all the time, you know, each label would sort of have its like cash cow. Like I did a lot of stuff with the drag city records and you would sort of like see the hierarchies of, of who's going to make me, who's going to be like the breadwinner, who's going to be and what Manuel was saying about it being a little bit more populist. I really, you know, I think that resonates with a lot of people because they were sort of looking for populism in this political dimension. And, and, and sadly, you know, it, it, it mutated into something else and or got crushed and i think uh the arts could could use a little bit more of that yeah you know interestingly uh barrett i think there uh there's a lot to be learned like from music in general like the the carnival barking or like the word salads uh, the hype manning whatever that i do uh pedestalizing it's sort of um supposed to be like a spontaneous call and response thing you know um like it's an event you know you show up for it and like i write those off the cuff after like rereading the piece and internalizing it um and uh yeah sorry I'm, my thoughts are kind of scattered but uh where were we i i why did i bring this up <laughs> oh no we were talking about uh hype men and sort of giving attention to the work Oh, yeah. So, I mean, a lot of, uh, like, I, what I meant by populist, I guess, is, um, like, yeah, I mean, a lot of, uh, like, art gangs can have been, like, in the last, like, probably since, like, you know, the early 2000s in literature, been very, like, insular. Um, like, which I say, like, neutrally or whatnot. But I guess, like, one thing I've always done is, like, sort of, uh, you know, hold court with the lepers, so to speak. <laughs> like, that like nobody will touch and I don't yeah. know, I guess they see. I, I definitely know. I mean, that's like my whole thing. It's just, <laughs> I, yeah. Too I, many people are afraid of like, uh, you know, like what it'll do to their reputation to associate with someone. Uh, I don't know. It's a little disappointing, I think, to be honest. I think it fosters, it fosters success in people who might not otherwise have it as well which is a beautiful thing. You know, you might have someone who who you see talent in, but they're not exactly the most obvious choice. And if you give them a little stage, even for a moment, like that could change their whole life. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's um, surprising you know, it, to me. And it might not, cool. it might not always, you know, like it, 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 it doesn't, it doesn't always work, but it's still meaningful for every individual who publishes on your site. And, uh, it's cool that, you know, I published something with you and I liked your response, um, to get a feel for it. And then we just kept talking and then now we have a book out and it's doing well. Like, that's cool. That's a beautiful thing. It's simple. It's honest. 
And it's personal. It's, yeah, it is. Like, uh, um, to me, there's like a lot of like lore surrounding the press and like, uh, like Curtis and I's collision is like another just, you know, patch of the fabric. Um, and it all kind of like happens in a way that would like make you superstitious because I'm always about to like stop doing it until someone like Curtis comes along. <laughs> guess you to keep going. Isn't it? Yeah, st- I think it's, oh, sorry. Go ahead, no, 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 you, no, 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 you go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, man, <laughs> no, please, please say something. I, I was going <laughs> to run, I was, I was run it back, but. Oh, I'm no, no, no. I just, <laughs> one of the themes, you know, I think in the book is, is obviously pharmacology and, you know, getting disc- it, And one of, one of the scenes that I think is really, really good is when the doctor, you know, um, is yeah, it, the ash, ash gets ash, prescribed. Yeah, he ash gets prescribed, and he's like, "I'm literally depressed. I'm going to fucking blow my brains out." And the doctor's like, uh, "Have you been getting enough likes on social media, or or how are how are your captions written?" As sort of like his responses, and I think that there's, you know, there's a really deep connection between this kind of palliative society that we live in and. Um, prescription and, and prescribing as well as as media, and I think that they sort of serve a similar ends, which is which is essentially to sort of like numb numb out the human condition, and 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 to me that's an incredibly troubling thing. Uh, and so I just was wondering if you had any any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that's, um, I think first of all, that chapter was the chapter that was kind of like an aha moment for me as I was writing the book. Uh, I thought, wow, this is, this really changes the pace of everything using that hallucinatory experience. Because if you notice that whole chapter is written in italics, which is all I'll say pretty much, but it's, you know, it's a key pivot. It's a key chapter. Um, I, I guess like there's, you know, he says, are your, are your captions, uh, when you're self-deprecating is it funny relatable or like sad and i think that's just a sad part on social media that i notice sometimes it's like you see someone i guess people call it cringe uh or and you know you see someone who's 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 really in in a a genuinely um or in a genuine moment of pain and they're sharing on social media and people you're you're it's happened to me I, i think it happens to everyone your first reaction is like why are you sharing that like well that's a lot to put out there and or you know you might really feel for that person you might really relate to that person and so the idea of someone going to a doctor and saying the opposite like please give me anything you can any drug and all they have for them is a is a social media account like I don't know. I just thought it was, it was telling again, there's a lot of symbols, a lot of symbols in the book that I don't necessarily have a definition for. I, I put them near enough each other to allow an audience to draw parallels. But the idea of the book itself is that the nacelle is hollow so that the audience themselves can come up with those connections. And so by, by defining any of the symbols myself or any of those chapters as like a, as a prescription, is um, disingenuous of me, I think. And I think it it's not completely accurate. It can't be completely accurate for, for anyone who listens to this. Like, I really want everyone to draw their own conclusions or whatever emotions it conjures in you, then that is, that's what it's meant to be. 
Yeah, I th- I think that's I think that's sort of one of the the more beautiful aspects of the book is it has a truly polysemic. Um, it gives a polysemic relationship between the language and the reader, and so much of it, like I wasn't sure if it was real or it was a hallucination on the part of the the narrator itself. So it's like I'm like, is this person like really blowing up? Did they really murder that doctor and say fuck Western medicine while they take the selfie? But you know, it's just you know, self harm is is such a serious. I think really serious problem that um, I think the book sort of like, you know, touches on, but it's not this, and it's interesting that you brought up, uh, you know, this kind of cringe oversharing need to sort of like tell your pain. That was very like 2010s Tumblr, but now it's almost like social media has switched and become this endless post cringe onslaught of like the violence of positivity where it's almost like, because every, because there's this onslaught of positive reinforcement that it needs to either, uh, that people accrue through say like Instagram, Twitter's a little bit more parasocial. It almost incurs a kind of like violence on the, the person, because I, I know for me personally, like if I post something and it gets a ton of likes, like I literally feel like it's Chinese death by a thousand cuts. Like I feel like somebody's taking a knife and just chopping at my nutsack. It, it, it truly feels, which is why I always, I turn off all my notifications because but do you derive, do you derive, you don't derive any enjoyment at all. Or you're like, you, the thousand cuts are like a masochistic kind of, I like mean, it. It, it, you know, it's, it's kind of like that Hellraiser, uh, Bata- George Bataille, you know, fucking between pleasure and pl- like, uh, it's that, it's that strange liminal space between pleasure and pain. But I'd say it's almost or jouissance, as, as Lacan would call it. It's that like extreme cringe that's almost so cloyingly, it's like cloyingly painful <laughs> a, 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 in a way. And, and I think because of the lockdown, it's just, it, it's just, you know, it had that sort of heightened sensation at a time, but now it's just like pure torture for me yeah i'm with you i almost never look at like twitter or or instagram anymore like i'll look at it for like one second that's as much as i can handle i mean they get used more as messaging apps i guess uh but yeah i mean everyone like especially during the pandemic and i think everybody just like accelerated from like very minimal social interaction to or like isolation into like this like intense like socializing and uh like naturally they were a bit unhinged and uh it's been an interesting year in that respect i think um i agree with you i want to run it i want to run it back really fast to what you were saying barrett about uh about like the dangers of social media like the cliff um because i guess the book is not exactly a warning per se or something like that. Uh, I do want to say, and I'm sure you had this experience too, making music and Manuel, um, whether it be writing or, or creating a literary press, like the dreamscape of imagining your success and imagining, you know, people loving your shit, like that is beneficial and it's fun. And so when I first moved to LA, like the idea of gaining the success and um, 
you know, having a lot of attention, like I really enjoyed it. And when I was at my most poor, my most starving, like uh, my most physically desperate, sometimes I was at my most um, psychically, emotionally, I guess, poignant because my daydreams were just, were just necessities to keep going. And so I think it was beautiful in some senses, but the danger is when you invest your entire identity on something that's, that's not actually tangible. And especially once you get that social media success, which I never did, like I just never posted because I was never confident enough in my work. Like I realized, Oh shit, I still have years of writing before I can actually start posting it. And I didn't even post, I posted some short stories and I was like, all right, I gotta, I gotta get better at this. And so now finally I have a book. And so I'll, you know, I'm not trying to be like, the Thomas Pynchon, whatever hermit, but I, I, you know, don't feel much of a need to post things besides uh, the occasional picture of a sunset or whatever. And, and my book. Um, but anyway, that's not the point I'm getting back onto me, but. Uh, well, that's one of my favorite things about your book that struck me right away is that it never like devolves into polemic. Like you, even though it could become like this, like hypercritical book, you know, you see like the beauty in like, modernity and and like uh like you know it's it's used very playfully like to enable the characters and like all these it's a very like fun enjoyable book but also like incredibly dark you know um but it's uh like you have a wide-eyed wonder and affection for the themes and characters like that is uh i think like palpable like psychedelic and soothing yeah Yeah. i do love the i do love the characters for sure I do too. Yeah, that's actually an amazing way of putting it. Is it's sort of, uh, it, it sort of trans, it it sort of sidesteps or either transcends or sidesteps polemics while also being something that you know draws you in and catch you know each each chapter sort of like catches your attention. And I think, I think you know in this in this like at this moment, that's what people really need. Um, if I don't know that that was really interesting. If you guys want to like speak on that, uh, because it's not it's not it's not criticism, and I it's truly I think you know when you're actually going out of your way to generate something, and you're on that sort of line of flight, I just I think things get a lot more immersive. And so yeah, I don't know. I guess uh, I was talking to Manuel about this actually when he was asking me about the book. And I would, I remember like, I love uh, a lot of James Joyce, not all of him, but a lot of him. Oh, same. Yeah. And, and uh, when I first read Ulysses, I really like, and I was not that good of a reader um, and not, not nearly as good of a writer as I am now. And I, when I first read Ulysses, I was instantly hooked and I had heard about it, you know, I knew, knew Joyce. And when I first read it, the rhythm of that first sentence, the rhythm of those first scenes really sucked me in. But then it just gets so difficult and there's so many illusions that it, it made it like, you know, it's a masterpiece, obviously, and it makes it so much more dense. But at, at the time, I was like, damn, I wish James Joyce would just write something that I could get immersed in easily. And so when I first started writing Hall in a Cell, I really focused on rhythm. I really focused on, on like prose style, I guess, and just something that was constantly moving, very little passive voice. Um, and 
when I did that, it just sort of lent itself without any explanation, you know, without any, any directive, it lent itself to just that constant movement. It is sort of like Joycean in a concise way, I guess you could say, like it's, uh, it's a lot shorter than Ulysses, but it's got the same kind of like, it's got the same kind of like quotidian, like sense of like wonder with every, it's, it's like environment, you know, it's a cozy book. Yeah. Yeah, I guess just that first sentence, it's like, uh, what plump buck mulligan, right. Just like the first sentence, Ash texted, yo, like it's, it's, I don't know. It just gets you in and it, it gets people moving. It gets like this every scene. I just wanted to keep moving forward, keep moving forward, have a faster pace than what's, what's been going on. I mean, everything seems to be moving faster and faster. And uh, I don't know. That's just the shit I like these days in terms yeah, of reading. Cadence. I, I do appreciate that. Like uh, a, a kind of style. I think that's something that's different that you're doing. Uh, Curtis is like, uh, like just writing with a very like kind of pronounced aesthetic style. Um, yeah. It like almost, it almost people. reminds me of, Sol- of Celine in, in some, hmm. in some regards, not so much like the use of Oxford commas, but just in, in the fact that it is so stylized in a way. And you could almost say again, like a little bit of Hoelbeck without maybe the, this the polemics but no i definitely see joyce and joyce was so so rhythmic you know and i I just i love that but there's also this like really sort of dark side but it's like a darkness it's like a cosmic beauty in 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 the kind of darkness where it's like there's that one moment where they're where they're discussing like if you got diagnosed with cancer who would you tell and um love says i wouldn't tell anybody i would just sort of like you know it, it, it's almost like relishing sympathy is almost like cheapening the experience or something like that. It's just, it's just better to kind of disappear. And I think a lot of people have this, you know, whether they want to, you know, explain it or not, they have this sort of like latent desire to disappear right now. I know I, I definitely feel that way. I mean, that's part of the reason I moved out here is because I just, I just wanted no, like, to go to the fucking grocery store and just like stare at lakes and eat barbecue by myself pretty much. And just not. (laughs) um, Yeah. So. I mean, that's why I live in Brazil partially every time I was down here, uh, like it started out teaching English and then I studied abroad and then um, graduated college and found that job with and fighting fires and whatnot, and then stayed down here. And then I kept going back to the U S and eventually it's just like, man, I, this, this, the disappearing aspect is nice. It's really nice. You feel really far. I do miss my family a lot, but it, it is good to feel far. And back to the, I liked what you said, um, cheapening the experience of pain by, by sharing it. Uh, I mean, look at Norm MacDonald. He like, Nobody, yeah. nobody knew, nobody knew he had cancer, you know, and, uh, there's just something so honorable fight. and beautiful about, about that, how he just yeah, one it day, it, it, I, I just think, you know, that there's like a real sort of nobility in not sharing everything that I think is, I think that's kind of why his, his death, you know, affected people the way it did is because here's somebody who had been, you know, essentially dying for 10 years and and 
he felt no need to share that with the world. Yeah, yeah. And, when you, and when you go back through his jokes over the last decade and you, you feel... Uh, you feel the, you feel that, like, have you heard that joke where he's like, he's like, uh, man, I'm sick of all these terrible people. Let's just go suicide. Let's go kill Hitler. And the guy's like, uh, dude, Hitler's been dead for 50 years. And he says, I didn't even know he was sick. You know, (laughs) it's like, I mean, you can't, I can't, I can't do Norm Macdonald justice, but, uh, but uh, him saying I didn't even know he was sick is is it's uh, it resonates now, especially. Yeah, I don't feel the need to like post a lot at all. <laughs> I make a lot of like drafts, but I find it actually like really uncanny and incredible. People who can like post all day, like I have like my moments, my bouts. I don't know, but I think I've like trained my mind not to engage with Twitter a lot. So it's probably that. It's probably some. Uh, yeah. yeah it's it's really really strange you know especially if you have a podcast you're kind of expected to engage a lot and i remember when i was first <laughs> starting starting the project out i was like i'm gonna do a lot of cover art i'm gonna like make my own music for the show and i want to give it like zero mimetic potential because a lot of you know projects mm-hmm. i think creative projects start with this notion of like I'm going to build a social media following through mimesis and then I'm going to unveil the world like my project, which is interesting because in the book, it's like, here are these guys who delusionally or not, you know, they're, they're hypothetically making all this money off their music and they only have three songs out. And then they're like, well, we should shorten them to 30 seconds. So it fits like the social media uh, binary formatting. And I, I think I see people formatting their thoughts into tweets. Uh, so, so almost like everything is mediated for the tweet or the image post. But they're not like thinking about, about that slow burn. And so you'll see a lot of people go about this and it doesn't translate. Like it, it doesn't, as where somebody like Curtis, who is a sort of like relative unknown, uh, can sort of just come out and immediately sell out a first pressing of books based on the work itself, I think is like really, really shocking. Like a lot of people are like, I'm going to get really famous and then I'm going to start a podcast. It's like, well, famous for what? And how do, how does this, like, how do these things translate cross format? And I really think people are, are really tricking themselves. And I think that's a part of that. I think there is a sort of danger in, in that as well. Yeah. I mean, the slow burn is underrated for sure. Go ahead, Curtis. Oh, I would just say, I like, I, I, well, back to what you said, Manuel, I admire some people who, who post all the time on social media. And I think people make really entertainment, really entertaining, really funny content and relatable content. And I love the accounts that just post paintings or short stories that they like and just put on other people. Like that's really great. Um, I, I think it's cool. And, and people who are, who have that balance of sharing, but it's almost like, you know, they're hiding like their, their genuine personality, but in like a healthy way. Like, I think that's cool. Just for me personally, I felt a sense of embarrassment when I would post something, I just didn't, 
I didn't like it. And I didn't like how I felt the reasoning behind it. And maybe it was like some, it was insecurity or whatever. I just never, it never, uh, it, it just never felt worth it to me. And the only but, reason I wanted to was, was with work that I thought was worthy of other people's time. And I just didn't think my work was until, until now. But, but the way you use social media is, uh, is good. It's not like not a way to use social media. It's a way. Um, and like your stories are really good. If you follow them, I get that you don't post a lot, but like, uh, I guess that's like, you know, I, I feel like that's what Bear is talking about with the slow burn uh, approach. Yeah. yeah, no, I just, I think, I just think what he's, what Barrett, what you said, uh, famous for what? There's uh, so many people where it's like famous for what? And that's being, cool if you're, if you're making famous. <laughs> yeah, if, I mean, it's cool. Yeah, it's like very postmodern. It, it's, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm I, sorry, I didn't mean, I just want to clarify, like, I didn't mean like it, there's anything inherently bad with it. I'm talking about, um, the kind of the notion that you can translate between that temporality and the kind of long format temporality. That's basically all I was saying. I wasn't like trying to make a value judgment. No, I mean, I think there could be something, I think there could be something wrong with it in that it wastes people's time. And like you said, or it can be considered that because, you know, you lose your life to, to that mimetic form that you're chasing or you can. And, uh, I don't know, man. It's, it can be, it can be detrimental. This idea that I think I, I was talking to someone in education. So I taught fourth grade privately uh, to two kids for a year in Los Angeles. And I was doing, I was talking to a bunch of teachers, like elementary teachers. And one of the women was talking about how she was talking to lower income fourth and fifth graders and that they said at, in fourth and fifth grade that they were planning on becoming like Instagram famous, social media famous, and that it, you know, inhibited their ability to, to try in school because they didn't need to because they see everyone getting famous. And like, that's, that is fucking crazy to me. Cause when I was in fifth grade, like I wanted to be a professional skier, like a professional athlete, um, but I didn't, you know, bank on it or something. And so the idea that I could really, really believe in myself to like drop out or whatever in fifth grade, maybe that's could be beneficial in a way that you like start really hustling at a young age. But I still think there's something a little distorted about it. It's uh, it's cool to have like a book or a record and like, that's it, you know, like, um, I don't know. I feel like you have a lot of freedom that way. You get to do whatever you want. Um, yeah. All like the online like exposure, like uh, having a personality online or whatever is just like pretty stressful. That's why I don't like do it anymore for the most part. Like, yeah. No, yeah. I, actually, um, you talk uh, in your guys' interview, um, you talk about... Uh, playing rhubarb for uh young kids that you're teaching uh rhubarb the the aphex twin yeah. ambient track and mm. and sort of one thing you actually said was um at first it it the drawing that she did as an interpretation was small and then it got bigger and it's so you talk about this thing where it's like lenticular and that it gets small. Like there's, there's something 
and and she talks about gratitude and it's just like there's like a complexity there i don't know if you want to explain that about this this thing of something being really tiny and really vast and huge at the same time and it's like actually as james joyce one of james joyce's quotes is within the particular lies the universal and it, it kind of brings that up to me Damn, that's sick. I didn't know the word uh, lenticular. I just looked it up. Relating to the lens of the eye, I guess I probably could have gotten that. Uh, reticular is an interesting word too. Reticular, yeah. which I think is like the the inverse. I don't know. Yeah. Um, no, I think I like I love rhubarb. That song I listened to it on repeat when I was writing the book, and it it means a lot to me. It brings me a lot of nostalgia, and. Um, that was i again i started using that with um i was teaching a a kid a a boy who was dyslexic and it was really hard to get him engaged initially and so one of our one of the favorite one of that 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 uh that exercise was really effective because when you like music and you can just doodle i mean who doesn't like that that's easier than than writing a a sentence or a paragraph and so after you have that visual representation down in front of you it's already stimulating those thoughts and um yeah that moment with that girl uh that was that was cool like that was that was actually that happened like a day or two before I did the interview with Manuel and it was fresh in my mind. But the fact that she said it looked like a molecule, um, it looked like something microscopic and something universal. Uh, that's, that's pretty beautiful. I mean, it reminds me of like men in black or something where they zoom into the marble and the fucking universe is in there. Like, it's, you know, we have no idea the, the size or scope of anything. Yeah. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I could I could kind of like self-hypnotize sort of. Like I would almost have like a panic attack as a kid for a second where I would imagine myself and like zoom out and imagine myself like on the soccer field, imagine myself in Colorado, in North America, you know, in the universe and zoom out super fast and I'd get like this crazy overwhelming sensation of... Um, of scale and uh, I can't really do that anymore to the point of that it actually like affects me really deeply um, maybe if I'm taking drugs but uh, I-, I think that children have that ability like more of a psychic ability you can say they're closer to God you can say their their yeah. pineal gland isn't hardened um, or whatever your theory is uh, innocence um, but go ahead Oh no, I was just going to ask you, um, you, you just mentioned God, how does, there seems to, there's like a very sort of spiritual component to your writing. And I was wondering if you had any sort of like, uh, what, what that relationship looks like, because you, you talked about children being closer to God. Uh, Simone Vey says something along those lines as well. And she's somebody who I'm a, I'm a huge fan of. i bring her up probably like every every time i i open my mouth at this point so um yeah i just was wondering what what that relationship is like for you um i mean i was raised pretty agnostically like i my parents didn't push me too much in any direction i didn't go to church unless it was with friends and when i was in los angeles i had some very close friends who were more into it and and like attending church 
And every time I went, the older I got, the more I related to the the unity and the the I don't know the the giving yourself to something. I really I really like that that gratitude that I guess humility. And I don't align myself with any uh, particular sect exactly, but uh, I mean I talked about ayahuasca some, and I've done that quite a few times down here, and I really enjoy. And I've hung out. With, I've had like I've been blessed enough to to have spent some time with indigenous tribes in Brazil and their, their religious inclinations are just beautiful, their connection with nature. And so, you know, there's a lot of like memes about ayahuasca, but I, I really encourage people who are curious about it to try it. I think it's a beautiful experience and the more you do it, the deeper you can go. And it's not, it's not perpetually beneficial. Like it's, but it, it requires commitment. Like if you don't, if you don't, uh, eat raw if you don't eat red meat and you just eat like raw vegan for a couple of weeks which is not my inclination at all and you quit smoking cigarettes and you quit smoking weed and you don't have sex like if you really commit yourself to something that that diligence it every time I've done that it's rewarded me and um and every time I didn't it hasn't and I think that the spiritual level that you go to with that that tea it, it, there's no doubt in my mind that there's a, like another life or there's a, a unity, a post, a post this life unity beyond what we're in. That's what I believe. And I think that the, the hallucinatory realm of hollow nacelle, but that the belief in all three of the characters, all three of the main characters, um, I think that is related to God in the same way that when you dream at night, it's, it doesn't necessarily feel like it's just yourself. You know, there's something, there's something that you're tapping into somewhere else that you're tapping into someone else that is influencing it. And I think that's beautiful. I do too. To, re- to relinquish control a little bit. Yeah. I think, um, just what you were saying earlier, uh, you mentioned, well, the thing about unity, I think is really interesting because on one, on one hand, you know, uh, in Dzogchen Tibetan Buddhism, you know, there's there's these teachings that everything already is open intelligence. Like we don't sort of need a telos because everything is already sort of interconnected. So sort of strengthening our connection to that is how we achieve these sort of like continuous short moments of of actual enlightenment. And I think that's a sort of enlightenment that um really sort of runs counter to the enlightenment narrative of modernity. And I think that there's something that really should, at least for me, is is absolutely necessary to explore. And one of the things you talk about is commitment. And I actually, I, I really agree that everybody sort of needs uh, a commitment in life worth almost dying over, or at least subsuming your, one's identity into that commitment so it feels at least like momentarily like short bursts of death and i really do believe that and it it can be sort of like anything right like i'm not going to sit there and tell somebody what that commitment should be but i think that you know with the disappearance of rituals and the disappearance of commitments and you can kind of see it with like only fans like there used to be like hardcore street prostitutes or like artists who really sort of like starved and and really sort of like uh, felt the pain 
associated needed to perpetuate like meaningful work, um, you're sort of seeing people kind of like toe this line a little bit where it's like um, we can, it, as long as it creates passive income, we don't actually have to commit to it because the, that will take care of itself. And I think, I think it's really sad because it suspends our relationship with time. Time no longer becomes um, linear or shared or connected or, or jointed with other, with other people, other individuals. And I think that's really sad, honestly. I, yeah. I think it's interesting that, that you say that the passive income is interesting, especially when you have people, when the artist themselves doesn't believe in their own work, but there's an audience for it who, who feels like they would die wholeheartedly for it. That, that is, is, I don't oh, know what that man. is. That's fucking crazy. <laughs> like just thinking about that is so insane to me. Yeah, what, what, keep going. I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, there's just some, you know, maybe you have the, the celebrity child artist who their suffering is at such a different level that the, they don't have to grind for their art. Like it's not about money. It's not about starvation. Their suffering is at a plane that, you know, the three of us could never, could never really fathom. Um, I definitely felt bad for some people who I met who were seemingly thrust into the spotlight without having culminated or honed a talent or, or reason for that spotlight where it was like someone was already using them since they were like 16 or something. Because when I was starving or grinding or in so much doubt, it was like, okay, like, <laughs> fuck man, this sucks, but it makes that ritual all the more important it's it's a complete necessity because that's how you get through hunger is like you write that's how you that's how you distract yourself from from the decision that you made to be an artist you're like dude why am i doing this and then you just have to keep going with that ritual and i think i think that makes the the first time you publish something online or the first person who who says man i really i'm going to start reading now like this is cool like that it makes those little moments way more worth it because you've put in that time um but yeah. there is there is a disconnect between the artist and how they feel about some work and the audience you know you see bands whose most famous song that they hate but audiences love it uh, I was at a Mark Kozlik concert and he was like, what song should I play? And someone's like, Ben's my friend, you know, Sun Kill Moon. And he's like, oh, wow, fucking creative. Ben's my friend. Like, just like so pissed at it. And I love I love that song, but it's just it's funny, man. So I don't know. So yeah. I on that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's su it's super funny. I, I just I think about that a lot, too. Like, um sort of like the way in which like artists their work especially now with with the way everything sort of just kind of like lives forever it's it gets subsumed through endless data and i think that's kind of the beauty of you kind of like writing this book and the book is your statement it's kind of like um my struggle or something where uh <laughs> and, and honestly like Nausgaard isn't a, a writer whose style I particularly like. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like some kitchen sink realism, uh, but uh, I find it, I do find that sort of like statement that kind of like, I think one of the problems now is people, they don't do anything with any authority. So it becomes really difficult for people to synthesize or, or lose themselves or, or forget their pain 
without that commitment, like even if it's a commitment to the mundane. Uh, and I think you start like people question, well, what is autofiction? Why is it? Why are people writing autobiographical fiction? And I think, you know, on some level, like artists, we're sort of we have this kind of like deep sadness. And, and I really do think that there's like a sensitivity to that. And I just remember like, you know, I was playing in this band and I fucking hated the music. It was like the dumbest butt rock shit ever. And it was like the most depressed year of my life. And I was getting paid like $600 a show cash. And it was like great or whatever on, on paper. But there's, there's like so many different layers to like how we feel and, and how it informs our identity. And identity is this incredibly complex thing. Uh, and it's getting more and more difficult as we sort of exit this anthropocentric mode of existence. And what I'm sort of hoping and what I was wondering, I'm going to ask you about you guys is what do you think a kind of non-human centered existence could potentially look like? Do you see it as like a good thing or a bad thing potentially? I'll let Manuel take that one. A non-human centered existence. I mean, I, I like what you were saying about like, uh, you know, like how, uh, like a spiritually healthy way to live is like counter to what the collective status quo is, what we're, you know, we're supposed to be like aspirational and very like independent and stuff like that. But I don't know. I mean, the thing that keeps those like short bursts of, uh, rage, I think you called it, uh, sorry, bear to paraphrase you. But, uh, for me, it's like just, uh, output, you know? Um, so, I don't know. I don't know what you would call that. I, I guess it's like giving things away. So it's not really like that, uh, like individualistic, but um, like that's what keeps me going. I don't know if that answers your yeah, question. Or- no, that's, that's great. Um, I think, I think, co- I think consistency is something that's, it, it's so hard because on one hand, consistency is sort of like optimized within neoliberalism to, like accrue a certain because actually in the episode I record with Brad Phillips he was talking about like I'm like known as the Instagram art guy but like I fucking hate it but I know that if I don't post something yeah that was that was really good he said he was trying to he was just keeping his head above water right with every post he felt like someone would uh if he didn't start if he didn't keep posting someone would just take his place right yeah and that's uh that it's brutal, man. It's prison. It is. It's, it's psychic prison. It's uh, that's kind of the, the definition of psychic prison, I think. And it's, it's really interesting because he makes such beautiful work and he's such a great writer. And obviously like, I think one of the best overall artists of like Gestamp Kunst work, like that's sort of yeah, total, the total form. And, 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 you know, it's, it's difficult, man, because on one hand it's like, you know, I know he's not like an egotistical person at all. And it's like that pain of like wanting the work to survive and also needing to make money in a certain sense and like, you know, keep up with the times, but also trying to distance yourself. And I, and I think that comes, you can maintain that distance. Is there like a barrier within that you can maintain or is it all just like totally fucked? Like that, that's like the question I always ask. 
I mean, I was surprised when he said that, actually. I just listened to that podcast uh, partially today and a couple days ago because I was trying to familiar my, f- familiarize myself with you to uh, see what I was getting into. And uh, I read Essays and Fictions, and I really liked, I really liked that book. Um, and it seems like it did really well, and it seems like his art has done well. And I wondered if it was because he was a successful artist before this era, and so now he pins his success to to that sort of popularity or perceived popularity. I like, I don't really know. I don't make enough money with my art to, to survive. Um, you know, I like teach English and I edit college essays for Brazilian students who are trying to go to the U S and, and so I like, you know, don't maybe feel the need to post my income is elsewhere. I would love to be able to, to continue to write all the time and like put all my energy and effort into it. I think to get away from that, I mean, I don't know how much money he has, but he could definitely come down to fucking Brazil, man. <laughs> come to South America. <laughs> the exchange the exchange rate really is is pretty nice, man. Like getting paid in dollars uh and and spending hey ice, like that's that's one way to do it. I can say that. It's not an easy transition per se, but uh it it's it's I've made it work. Um Yeah. yeah. I, I just, I went to Brazil. I played a show. I've actually, I did like a, a Banos and we did a mini tour of Brazil. And this was sort of before like the great financial crash. Well, it was actually during America's financial crash, but Brazil at that time was a resource-based economy mostly. And it was, it almost felt like paradise to me. Um, I was like, you know, you'd go to these like wealthier areas of Rio de Janeiro, like off of Ipanema Beach, and you'd see these buildings and they had cracks. And I and I was wondering, like, if this is the rich part, why are there cracks? And I was telling like our host this and he was like, well, because people here don't feel the need to fix them. It's, it's, it's just a crack. Like it's like if it's structurally sound and I was like, wow, these people have actually figured out how to live. Like they're not optimizing for anything. They're just simply, (laughs) they're just simply functionally big and their diets are like way better than ours. And I I was just sort of like, for sure. Yeah. The food is fucking incredible there. Uh, I mean, I just was like eating fish balls like off the beach, getting super fucking blackout wasted. I just I just had yeah, the most amazing. Yeah, I just had like an amazing time, and it really sort of uh, stuck with me. Like, if there is a sort of like ground or authentic culture, how how much that can really carry you. I mean, the first time I came to Brazil was actually to a place really uh, afastado, they say, uh, isolated, I guess, uh, called Porto Velho Rondonha. And it is considered a shithole. Like, it is the most deforested area in the world. It is in the middle of the fucking Amazon. It's like tires and industry. And I just felt some sort of spiritual kinship. Like the moment we got off the plane, I just loved it. I loved the people. I, I loved the food, the humility, teaching my classes. Like all the students just felt blessed to have me as an English teacher just because they trusted my grammar and my ability. Like I was 18 and my students were, you know, high schoolers. So it was like just making new friends kind of. And I, I just felt I don't know. It was a really, really good first impression. And since then, you know, I've traveled to different places and Sao Paulo is like 
one of the most diverse cities in the world. I think they have the, the largest group of Japanese outside of Japan and Italians outside of Italy and, you know, Angola, same thing. So it's the diversity is crazy. And uh, the culture is, it, it suffuses the, it, like everything you do. Um, that, that, that aspect of humility, like just the other night, uh, Zion and I were walking back from, from dinner and there's like a little bar that just opened up across the street from our apartment. And there were like 10 dudes, probably forties, fifties, all just playing drums, singing Samba. They had the little, uh, man, I forgot the name of the instrument. It looks, it sounds and looks similar to a mandolin, but that's not what it's called. And I'm kicking myself. Uh, but it was, we, we stayed there for like two hours and just listened to them play. One of the guys handed me a, a, a shaker and, and I just, you know, got in with the rhythm, like bullshit in or whatever. But it's just like those kind of moments don't really happen in the United States in my experience. So that's what I really like about it here. Yeah, that's, that's really amazing. Um, yeah. So like, how, like one thing I'm just kind of like fascinated by is how, like, what do you guys see like this whole literary movement? Like, do you think like, what do you, cause you know, you spoke about like music. Were you ever a musician, Curtis or Manuel? Did like, did you guys ever like mess around with music at all or? Uh, I play guitar. I play guitar a little bit and I, I enjoyed songwriting. Um, I'm like a, but no, I never, I never went all in into it. Uh, I could see myself doing it in the future, actually, if I just had time. I just, I really believe in going all in on, into something when, when you pursue it. And so right now I'm still on the writing thing. Um, but yeah. I, I would, I would like to get into some music. I really enjoy it. I've recorded a few songs and like written a few songs, but nothing serious. I, I did play music and I think that like if you play music you uh like you understand certain things about like doing a reading for instance um like I don't know I I've been accused of sounding like a roadie or a techie before I mean like uh I think it's um like I don't know uh I I I do think that there are things that I learned from music but I'm glad I like I'm glad I'm a writer and not a musician definitely personally uh i'm i don't know if you feel the same way barrett being an ex-musician yourself if you're glad you're kind of like free oh the world. I so glad like that yeah <laughs> like incredibly glad i mean it's yeah it, it's been such a blessing because i don't know like i feel like if you feel uncomfortable with like a form you're working with or a job or a vocation it, and it it becomes like this part of your identity it's like once you're able to sort of like free yourself of that, I think it's really amazing. Would you say writing, uh, there's a little bit more freedom in, in that in regards to like your ability to maintain your, um, like actually like create some space there or. I mean, there's freedom, but like if people read your writing, uh, I don't, I don't know. I feel like it can definitely affect how they see you. They can see you, they, they can start to see you as a writer for one thing, <laughs> which is like a whole other like species of person. I don't know if Curtis, Curtis's experience in this will all be new, but that's my experience as, as a published self-published writer for a little longer. Um, but, uh, like, 
Yeah, well, you can kind of you can kind of get objectified in a way, just through your writing, like which is weird. But I don't know. Yeah, I guess there's a to me there's a freedom of writing, a freedom in writing in that like. If I go to the doctor's office, I'll, you know, like in Brazil, I don't have health insurance. So I go for the free health care and it takes forever. So like, you know, bring a little journal, put on the headphones, listen to rhubarb or whatever. And you can, uh, <laughs> you can, you can write something like it might not be good, but like you can, you can do it in a couple hours, even with, you know, someone hemorrhaging next to you. Like if you can focus and, uh, I- I think we weren't, we weren't built for comfort. We were built for greatness, you know, as <laughs> Pope, Pope Pius said. Uh, um, I'm probably misquoting that, but yeah. Uh, Barrett, Barrett, I have a question for you. What was the breaking point with you and music? Uh, it was, honestly, it was just sort of seeing how there wasn't a lot of, like, conceptual or intellectual questioning of of like or or just sort of like a critical framework for why people were doing what they were doing everything sort of became it, it was just very surface level and you know i i've always had kind of like a a passing interest in in critical theory and you know i'd be like hiding these books on tour and stuff you know reading all the stuff and and i just got i just got more into reading and i and i think you know, if you choose a sort of more introspective life um, and you want to share those ideas uh, with people and actually like form communities around them, I think it becomes a lot, I think it becomes kind of difficult to, uh, to do, um, it becomes more and more sort of like tedious to, to continue on a certain path where, it's you're not expect that's not expected of you and if you are doing that it's almost like seen as a bad thing you know and and, and you do. can and you can kind of see it within the characters of, of your book in that like um there's just there's no question uh it, even though like the end is incredibly sad and beautiful and there is this kind of like leave society moment uh it's almost like you have to just be out of it in order to appreciate it, in order to appreciate those moments. Yeah, that is interesting. I guess, I guess that's cool that you said that. Cause it just made me realize like Ash and Champ are arguing about their own identity as artists while their fan base doesn't care. Um, and I think that can be really sad as, as an artist, you know, you're, you're caring so much about your identity and, and how people interpret you, but all they really care about is like, it's the way you make them feel and the way that they see you. Uh, okay. So Barrett, my next question for you, sorry, uh, is, uh, is, uh, based on that, you asked us what you, what we think, like where the literary scene is going. So you as a musician and then got someone who's getting more into reading and now like having me on the podcast, which I think is really cool. And I'm, I'm really thankful that you had me, um yeah me too but like but like where do you where do you see it going because i just got into this and it was as a like i wasn't even a i was aware but i wasn't even a part of like twitter until last december really in terms of like the writer sphere and uh like this small literary scene and i think it's really crazy and, and compelling and fun but i i am you know a fan but also just just been working and so i'm wondering what you think about it 
I think it's you know I think it's very interesting. Sierra's published stuff with Expat before, and so I mean, yeah. I, I think it's um, I think it's I think it's a really cool thing. I mean, you know, it, it's just it's kind of like with everything. You know, you have people who are. Uh, specifically, I almost feel like geographically, like one of the reasons I, I feel like connected to you is because you moved to Brazil and I moved to Texas. But there is a kind of, you know, Edie Sedgwick uh, kind of like quasi obsession with with nouveau micro celebrity that I think certain geographical places reinforce. And And so I just try to, I mean one of my big goals is to start doing events in Texas and keeping things very sort of like geographically centric, uh, just to sort of like, you know, because I, I really do believe in, in, and as like Manuel does and you do in sort of like cultivating things and believing in things that may not already need establishment or like they, or you know what I mean? Like the, the people or the, the scenes themselves are, they're not seeking right. that. And, and because they're not seeking that, it can just sort of like exist on its own. And I've met like so many beautiful people who are super intelligent, super smart, like very, very insightful people who teach me things all the time um, just by uh, being outside of that. So I would almost say it's like, you know, people say that like the geography has been exploded by the internet, but I don't really, I don't really, if you go to a place like, Sao Paulo or you go to certain places in America or all over the world, I really don't think that's true. I think that's the perception people have when they're within these kind of um, cultural production centers that... Uh, right, yeah. I mean, if your only connection to a scene is via the internet, then you then you only get sort of the, the run-of-the-mill celebrity, but you actually have to dive into the scene. I like that, what you said, micro-celebrity. When I first got to Sao Paulo or really like dove into um, like the scene here, I guess, I guess it was 2016 and I met, you know, some, some people who influenced me forever. Um, they're all like trans and, and they're all crazy artists, like just fucking weirdos, man. And I love them. And uh, they are, they were so underground, like literally hosting unregulated raves in like abandoned train station type shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like it was just so like everyone is like face tattoos and split tongues and fucking naked and just like crazy drugs or whatever, which I was, you know, 22. And, uh, and I just, I had never seen something where it's like everybody knew everyone in the scene. So everyone was their own kind of micro celebrity and it allowed you to be accepted and meaningful and important. And like to see that it was, it was it was crazy, man. It was eye opening for me. So I, I agree with that. I like that terminology. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, Oh, sorry, Manuel. What were you going to say? No, I was just going to say like, I think this idea of like, uh, like a writer sphere is bad probably like beyond <laughs> yeah. like ad, ad hoc, like pleasure communities. Like there shouldn't be anything more. Some of my favorite people online, like are not like formally writers and actually some of the best writers I've found, you know, they come from like such different like kinds of backgrounds, you know, they maybe only have a passive interest in publishing, you know, uh, but anyway, uh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just uh, talking about that kind of like wildness. Uh, it seems like people's identities in 
in these major cities are sort of like weaponized in a certain way or codified. But like coming to Texas, like you go to a bridge tunnel and there's like Halcyon Vale, uh, who are like this DJ collection collective from Texas, like San Antonio, like suit like trans, like super gnarly, like not politically correct at all. Like they've got like Dracos and AK forty sevens. They're like on top of a cage uh-huh. playing violin, and it's. It's like this completely different thing. It's it's really intimidating, but it's it's like very Texas centric in a certain way. It's like, oh wow, this is like people say like this is a San Antonio thing or something like that. And I'm just <laughs> I'm just like kind of blown away and it's it, only because you know, there are all these there's so many different places in the world that we can sort of that are fostering these really like genuinely interesting, bizarre, binary transgressing things. And I just, and when you're talking, Manuel, when you're talking about like any sort of scene associated with what we just said, pleasure, um, communities, a ple- that's yeah. a, what that's can a you elaborate on them. a, on a, what a pleasure community is? Cause I've never yeah, actually you, heard you, that. You're talking, well, about, like, you're talking about, go ahead, please. It's like Dave Hickey describes them as pleasure communities. And that's like the most authentic form of art is like, you know, somebody playing like a banjo, like on a, on a, like a street corner and people gathering, you know, and then like something like say the parish review would be like considered like the museum, you know, by then like the work is behind glass and it has spectators, which is contrasted with like the pleasure community. And so what I, I don't know, I guess what, like what I'm saying is like this idea of a of a lit community and like is probably like pernicious in the long run uh is a lot of like really stupid things get done in the name of community of course i mean <laughs> like but and especially like online i, just I will say that whole, i will like, say i will yeah. say it's i will say a lot of people that i see like it's like a circle jerk kind of online on twitter like yeah first got that's on a there, big I was problem like, yeah it's like everybody likes each other's shit likes each other's writing but it's like some of it is not good and not everything (laughs) i'm gonna be writing is good like not everything i write is good even if i think it is and so like i don't want i don't need people being like oh my god this is great like my fucking twitter post as well uh i would rather have someone i would rather have no one like it if it's not good you know what i mean like and i just that's the one problem with with the community thing online dude it's like no i mean so i like validation i do like i mean it, art doesn't exist in a vacuum you know and uh like um yeah, yeah i don't know but do you, like, but do you I, want it do you want it always if it's not i don't know like no if, not if, really if i'm I, not motivated if, by it if you sent me something that I was like, you know, I've told you your work is good. And like, if you sent me something that I didn't think was good, I would, wouldn't you want me to tell you? I'd be like, yeah, you could do better. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not yeah, motivated. Nobody, by nobody can cr- like criticize like the in group now. Everything's like the in group out group dynamics of the internet have gotten so nebulous and strange to where like it, any sort of like, perceived in-group critique can create this really kind of excessive split between people and movements. And I, I just, I, I personally like to see actual critique of, of work and what you're doing. And because it, you know, it fosters a level of growth, like it fosters a level of 
you know, of, of I think, trust. I, I mean, if everybody's just saying, I like this just because, you know, neoliberalism is this endless pleasure principle, thing, weird, uh, liquid thing that we're, you know, like you can't do that or it creates this dramatic, you know, everything's so dramatized by that. I think it's actually a really good thing when people are like, yeah, man, like that episode you did wasn't that great. Like you should, you should focus more on doing something like this. I, I always am like, okay, yeah, noted. Like I'll do this better, you know, if I, if I think that's true. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, dude, I spent, I spent a fucking year on Hollow Nacelle and, and there was definitely a time where I was like, this is fucking retarded. You know what I mean? <laughs> like there's yeah. a, there's a point where I'm like, what am I doing? Like, how is this going to connect? Like, how can I, how can I iron it out? And I felt like I got to that point and I felt that I created a piece of work that is truly um, worthy of someone else's time. But I still am waiting for the moment where someone is like, bro, this is fucking trash or whatever, you know, and I'll take it in stride. Like, I think that I think it would be cool. Um, But, you know, so far, just a few positive responses, which is great. I mean, that's obviously ideal. But uh, I, I do think the honesty factor is is huge and it gets lost in the fear of if you critique someone, especially someone who has had given you positive feedback in the past, that they're going to be less likely to give you positive feedback in the future. No. Yeah. I mean, criticality is important at the very least, like as an ambivalent foil, you know, you should be offended by praise. I think. (laughs) Oh, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Is, is, Um, isn't praise, can't praise feel really toxic to you? It can definitely very easily. I guess when it's like sincere, like it's cool, but like, I mean, you're not supposed to be affected by it really. Like, so like, I don't know. I definitely pay more attention to criticism, but even that, like, I don't know that I listen to all that much. Like I, try I, to, I, I consider try, it all. I try to praise people who only can, can, uh, can do something for me in the future. Just really? Come on. No, <laughs> oh man, I was I was like, oh shit, maybe this isn't um, what I thought it. Was. No, no, you're. No, um, that's that's a that's a dark trait. I mean, it, sarcasm. No, 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 no. Just just this idea that just just you know how like people will will withhold something just because they know that they can get something in the future from someone. I think that's I think that's kind of I think that's kind of gnarly. That is gnarly, yeah. Every time, like, I see that, it's like it's it's such a deep repulsion. I mean, I don't know. As a publisher, like, it, there's not that many of us, so we get solicited all the time, and like, it's weird. Like, you start to see because a lot of people want a book out, you know. But like, as a small press publisher, like, every single book that comes out is like this incredibly like intimate, consuming, hands-on process, you know. Like, it's really just me. And so, like, and I, I really need to, like, spend time with the work and its author and everything to do it. Um, like, anyway, I forgot where I was going with this. But no, if there's uh, not if there's not a if there's not a trust there, it has to be difficult. And to be in your position, like you have a position of power. Um, yeah. So, so a lot of people it's weird. Like I've had to, like, take back. I mean, I don't want to like, but I have had like several times uh 
throughout like expat or whatever i've had to like kind of like save it from corrupting influences i'll say that like people start to project on it it becomes this like unwieldy thing i don't know and i kind of like it like it's so chaotic and it's always like kind of fragmenting and whatnot uh like everything is just an accident you know curtis found me like just i don't know how he did it but he just got me to give him my number and then he got me to talk to him (laughs) yeah but i wanted to get to know you too because i really believed in my book like i really did i I thought i could get a bunch of different people to publish it you convinced me yeah but i I, but yeah the more we got to know each other i really thought that that manuel his path and his Mostly, man, you just have a love for literature and at the sentence level that I think is beautiful. Like in your own writing, I thought you would appreciate my work at the sentence level, which not a lot of people do. Not a lot of publishers look at something at the sentence level. And so I thought that was really beneficial. Yeah, there is a dearth. I do think that like in that vacuum, we do sort of feel like, uh, like, I don't know, I guess like kind of like styles that not many other presses tend to touch. Like, I try to always, like, I mean, we only do, like, five books a year, so each one, like, should be completely different and, like, unlike anything else out there. Yeah. You know? And it's, it, like, yeah. The chaos factor, I think, is really, because you brought that up, you're, like, it, it, yeah. it just all feels very chaotic and I don't know what's going to happen next. That can, That's, <laughs> yeah. like, really taxing. I think when you start any kind of platform, I think that can be super... It's, I think it's really hard to, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yo, Barrett, what, uh, how do you balance, how do you balance, you, do you select all the people for your podcast? Um, sometimes, sometimes people come to me. Sometimes people get recommended to me and I get like linked up with people too. Uh, so it's, it's like a really random thing where, you know, like I like this week I'm I'm doing six and seven days only because I, I got like it just all came to me at once. That's just how the that's you know, that's kind of how the cookie crumbled. So I just kind of like um, that just kind of happened. And it's super, you know, it got super, super fucking weird. Um and it's so strange because you know you do something and you want to keep it going and the longer you do it the more difficult it is you know in in a certain way i don't know if that makes sense like like you kind of get through like the learning pains of learning how to do it and then the longer it goes it's just like you don't know what's going to happen next and i i don't think people are equipped to deal with with like ups and downs and there's a lot of ups and downs like there's a lot of because you're you're constantly getting your feet you know you're constantly getting these sort of like this data and this kind of like feedback and these things like reinforcing whatever it is that you do you kind of just have to tune it all out and just be like yeah i'm just not going to care i mean there's always going to be you're you know, talking about the numbers you're talking about the popularity of any individual episode as compared to your perception of how yeah, that episode went yeah but I just stay out of it at this point. Like I don't look at yeah. numbers. I don't look at, I don't good, look at, good on you. I don't look at data at all. I just, so it becomes this thing where it's like intuitive. And sometimes my, in, my yeah. intuitions are like, you know, they're, they're trumped by 
the need to put something out um, only because you kind of, that's kind of like the Brad Phillips dilemma or whatever, you know, it's like there is something that within like doing a platform is man. Well, you know, like you put out books, but you also put out like a lot of literature on your site too. So like there's, there's that component as well. And it's just, I think at a certain point, it's, it's about like taking that experience and then fostering like a community that's genuine. But, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of like Virgil Abloh type people out there who are very, they're, they're very sort of like quick to latch onto something and like make it, you know, it's, so it gets really strange. Like that there is like a chaotic, like preservation uh, mechanism that comes into play that I don't know if yeah. you guys feel that at all. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think, I, I think Virgil uh, is pretty fucking smart with all of it. I mean, I agree. Like, I think it, it's uh, as far as latching on, I mean, I haven't paid attention to Virgil recently, but I will defend Virgil in that. I think his, you know, I talked to, I, I heard him talk once about uh, the 5% rule. Um I mean, I I fucking talked to Virgil one time, but I don't think it was in our conversation. But he's talking about, you know, Duchamp, who had a huge influence, flipping the fucking toilet, making the ready-made art. And that 5% rule that he applied to, like, all those Nikes, like, that is that that popped off. I mean, that got extremely popular. You know, you take a silhouette or you take something that's already – basically a piece of fine art that's proven itself and you find a way to make it your own, uh, whether or not you can give him 95% of the credit or only 5% of the credit with that. I think that is definitely up for debate. Um, but in terms of like latching onto things to stay alive. Yeah. I think once you get to the top, especially if you're getting paid a lot of money, you're probably going to have to, uh, <laughs> to stay at the top. You know what I mean? You're probably going to want to, but like, don't you think if you started, if you or any of us maybe blew up, like, like seriously, there is that pressure to, to appease fans, to appease more people and just, you know, continue your career make money. Like it's hard for, for like, I don't know, Barrett, do you like Kanye? I love him. Yeah. He's, he's my favorite. Right. So like you, you know, you make, you make Jesus, uh, like that's, that's pretty bold. Um, yeah. like that, <laughs> like, I don't know, like for when you're Kanye, that's, that's, that's pretty fucking bold. Like, I don't know if all of us can do that. I don't know if everyone can do that. Um, but I would love to be in the position to have the opportunity. Yeah, no, I mean, I just kind of stay out of the results. I mean, that's, you know, yeah. that's kind of what they teach you in AA is like the results are none of your business because ultimately it's like up to, you know, it's not your decision, whether you're like a deterministic uh, materialist kind of person or um, you're a spiritual, like God believing individual. It's like the results really like to put to put it in perspective you really have such limited control so i just kind of like yeah i mean you know it's just it's just an endless it, it's an endless balancing act and i think but you know it keeps you on your toes it keeps you like um it keeps you from like early onset cognitive decline and it helps you through um <laughs> through kind of like that mental uh 
I don't know, like um, burnout that I think a lot of people, I think is becoming more and more endemic in society is people feeling this like endless stress and malaise. And, you know, to sort of, it's kind of like the only way you can keep working through things is by not. I, I totally, I totally get you. Like Manuel is talking about how, you know, Manuel, you're talking about quitting, quitting the press, you know, like you don't always feel inspired. And I, I am lucky enough to be on my first book, but I, you know, haven't been writing as much as I have in the past. That's for sure. And Barrett, you're talking about making music and then changing it up. Like I imagine the only way that you could really continue something is you, you can't really give a shit about other people's opinion. You just have to follow your gut feeling about what is the best for you and the best for your, not the best for your brand in terms of the audience, the best of for your brand in terms of your own vision. Yeah. It's that deep intuition. I mean, I don't know if if you don't follow it, it's just none of it's worth it. You know, like that's such a good point. If, yeah, if you don't follow your intuition, none of it is worth it. Yeah. It's like one of the only things that makes it like keeps you from burning out, I guess. It's like finding like just new, exciting, like ways to, to keep it vital. You know what I mean? Like, so I guess like, Honestly, like I could care less about visibility at this point. Like I'm very happy with all the visibility we've gotten. Probably use less of it to be honest. Like, uh, <laughs> like, uh, um, you know, it's just like I don't know. Um, it's definitely it. It can be taxing, I guess. Like to be like Kanye or something. You know, I would imagine. I I like Jesus because it, it it's always felt to me like a, an album about like the nightmare of celebrity or whatever. Um, uh, I love Jesus. I think it's his best album. Yeah, I think actually I think Donda is is his best. But Jesus I love is Donda. Donda. Is... I love... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, as a musician, man, Donda's your favorite. Yeah, well, I think so. Uh, I've listened to it enough times. I mean, yeah. I, I actually it it might be my favorite because you know you have to remember I'm a post musician, so it's kind of like post music, which speaks to me more. It's more about like the ambience. People are like, "Well, where are the songs?" It's like, "Well, yeah, that's like kind of the point." Um, and yeah. I think it's more like an opera. Yeah, I, so I'm I'm sort of like shifting into things that are more th- like soundtrack based. Like it's like music that can be perceived as a soundtrack or something you could kind of like put on loop forever. And it's, it's more of a kind of, uh, it's more of like a kind of environment than an actual like song per se. And I think that's, I think that's kind of one of the, um, yeah, no, I think I, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of how I feel about it. So to answer your question now, I just got a thought about the future of literature I see, at least in a this indie movement, I guess, um, a future that lends itself to that type of vibe, that ambient, that eternal repetition. Um, like, I don't know if you've read, I was just talking to Manuel about the last piece that he sent me, and I guess you could consider it autofiction, but the last paragraph of it is like so it's not linear. It seems almost random, but I know it's not random because I know where he pulled some of these pieces from just in our last conversations over the last couple of weeks. It's not stream of consciousness. It's more like blip of consciousness. 
And if you've read uh, Edouard Levey Auto Portrait, have you read that, Barrett? Oh, I have not. No. So I definitely recommend Auto Portrait. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's like it's, it's like it's like pointillism. It's like the ultimate memoir, but it just like pointillism. I mean, the cover is like a pointillist fucking portrait. So uh, anyway, the it's sentence by sentence. He just says, you know, I thought this, I thought this, I like this, I don't like this. This is what I did here. This is what I did here. And there's some where a few sentences roll into each other, but there's many portions of the book where it almost seems like every sentence, it's not quite random, but the spaces between them, like how he went from one to the other, the the projection of the audience or for me, me thinking about, okay, how did he go from this sentence to this sentence? Because this is how I relate those two seemingly unrelated thoughts, but I really wonder how he did. And so it's almost like the ambience between the spaces in it. And I can read it forever because there's not like that much to be gained out of it in terms of just pure fact. Like it's just this dude telling you random things about his life. I ate strawberries in this city. I don't like strawberries, but I did it here and it was really enjoyable, but it was because of the sun, whatever. Um, I, I think that ambience is really, is really cool. And so then the other artist that I was comparing yeah. Manuel's writing to was Gary Lutz. And oh Gary yeah. L. Gary Lutz is great. Yeah. Yeah, and so I read a I read an interview that said uh, their style was like was like they would spend like Gary L right now I'll I'll uh, I'll be PC uh, and I fucking admire uh, her writing uh, I just know I just know him as her as Gary but fucking dude the 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 article I read said that she cut like she would spend a week on something and then cut it all out to be like three pages. And you can see the spaces. Like when you get the final product, the spaces are there, but it seems it's really genius. Like the construction of the sentence and that final product is fucking sick because you see where there were pieces cut out where a normal, more popular piece of art would have those connections And yet you're forced to make all the connections that someone decided to kill. And why did they do that? And it's like, that's what I think the future of of literature is. And that's what I think I admire most about Hollow Nacelle in my own work is like the pace is fast. Between each chapter, there are some major spaces between the the stream of consciousness and the non-stream of consciousness. There's there's some there's some major spaces and like i don't know i just think that the construction is going to change and continue to get more and more almost like dispersed in a way because people's ability to connect the dots is getting greater that's a that's actually yeah that's an amazing point um i i kind of see it it the sort of like the same way in that um you know in in this kind of like 20th century of modernism, you had a lot of, uh, you know, everything was kind of structurally premeditated on um, the material, like the material reality was the thing that sort of like was the was the thing that sort of like buttressed all other facets of life. And I think as we move into this new century, or you want to call postmodernism, I think that there's something that's incredibly liberating about uh, 
it can be liberating, but the the liberation of endless possibilities without reinstantiating a new ground or a new metaphysics, I think is the problem. So it's like, how do we, uh, I think if we can reinstantiate a sort of new ground or a new base uh, out of the um, kind of death of, of old modalities, I think a lot of really good, interesting, cool things can happen. And it, it it's... Yeah. And that's, yeah. So sorry. What, what I would just say that that just, to me, that just requires open-mindedness from the audience like with, every new, yeah. with every new piece of art. You have to, you have to throw away your expectations and you have to go into every new book, understanding that a great, a great book to me will teach you how to read it. And you might not understand anything that's going on for the first 50 pages, but you will, if the piece is great, you will learn how to read it and how to internalize that piece. And I think that when you subscribe to only prior modalities, as you termed it, like you, you can't, you can't like, if you listen to Donda and you're like, Oh man, he didn't make my beautiful dark twisted fantasy, the last three albums, but I hope it's this one. Like you're not going to enjoy it. It's just not going to happen. Well, yeah, I mean, the onus really is on the reader, you know, to to keep literature like vital. I think, not so much on the writer. Like, if you think about writing in this kind of like, uh, like, how do I like write to get like to piece some like arbitrary rubric uh, when you should be like competing with yourself and you know, like, essentially, like, I don't know. I, I think that can be like. I mean, it can just be so arbitrary. Like, what exactly are you like trying to do? You know, you should you should you should find a sense of satisfaction in your own work, and then that the reward is the work itself. You know, I agree. To. But my my competitive aspect is with myself. But the way that it's with other authors, or the way that it's with present art, is I want to make something that is new. Like, I really want to make yeah. something yeah. that is yeah. fresh yeah. that hasn't been done before. I want to make something that feels different. Well, in order for, but, but paradoxically, in order for something to feel different, the only competition you can have is with yourself. Uh, In my opinion, like I, I don't compete with anybody. I'm, I'm very sort of neutral because I, I do think that, um, you know, I really do think that if you're going to do something new and sort of like break a new format, like on one hand, like I'm inspired by negation, right? Like I didn't see like before this podcast came out, I'm like, no one's doing cover art. Nobody's doing like original sound scores or making it like a kind of surrealistic experiment of yeah, just so that's of, a form of, cons- of competition. Yeah, it's a competition, but it, it was like the negation sort of was the inspiration, but you don't hold on to that. Like, it's not like a chip on your shoulder. You're just like, why does everything feel so fucking shitty? Like, why does everything suck ass? Like, and then how do we do better? Yeah. How do we do better? And then you get, you start mobilizing that, but you also like, don't forget where you, 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 I guess you sort of came from in a sense. Well, I think you're right that, that the best version of anything you do, you are just, achieving yourself like you're digging deeper into yourself because what you consider negation is still it still comes from your own center you know it's not it's not someone else telling you oh, this is what everyone's doing so this is what you should do it's your own decisive factor that decides okay i need to go different than this but that's still your perception so at the end of the day you are just improving on your own perception of what's around you 
Yeah. No, definitely. Yeah, that's that's really, really good. Oh, man. I'm just sort of like, yeah, this has been such a beautiful conversation. Like, I'm fucking so, so happy. You guys are such great. You're so, I mean, you're both writers, so obviously you'd be great at, at talking as well. Um, yeah, so... Uh, and this is your show. Thank you for guiding the conversation. I mean... I I really feel like I had like a unique, like a singular experience being on this show. Wow. Uh, I I really appreciate that. So like we're at 112 minutes now. We're, we're reaching the two hour mark. I want to just ask you guys, like what is there, what personally, is there anything you wanted to share? Like, is there anything you really sort of wanted, want, want to share with anybody or, Mm. Um, I just, I'll say, uh, I mean, first of all, I'll say Barrett, thanks for having, thanks for having both of us on. I really appreciate you reaching out. And, uh, secondly, I guess I'll say I'm super grateful for the opportunity to, to publish in general and like really, really grateful for, for everyone that we referenced and talked about over the course of the show. I mean, like anyone I mentioned and anyone, I guess there's a lot of people I didn't, but like you don't inspiration is rare and rare. So it's cool to, uh, it's cool to get get on here and talk to you guys. And, um, I'm grateful for any listeners and I hope whoever listens, gets something out of it. Like I said, I just hope that anything that I do or make is worthy of your time. That's really what my goal is. That's such a beautiful way of putting it. I, I think, I think more people should listen to that advice and I'm definitely going to take that into consideration uh, you know, and one thing I do want to ask is, is there, do you believe in the possibility of taking something that may not be worthy of somebody's time and then refashioning it or polishing it? Or do you think that that intention is such, is there needs to be like that embedded intention within the thing itself? Oh, I might need an example. Do you have, do you have like I, a... I would say... Like, let's say you're writing a book and you don't think it's very good because I, I started writing a book and I'm at that point where I'm like, this is not it. This is not like good enough for me to like share with anybody, um, at least in my own opinion. I've sent like excerpts to people and they're like, oh, this is really fucking hilarious, but it doesn't really feel natural to me. Is do you, Do you believe in the possibility that like, like kind of like Jackson Pollock, like resalvaging your old ideas is, is a worthy cause or do you just like scrap it and go to something new? I wrote two, I wrote a book that I called crack cement that I sent to some of my friends and they seemed to like it, but I just thought it was immature. And it was, uh, I think they liked it cause it was me and that I was going for it or whatever, but I was really young and just not that talented. Uh, or not that developed. I don't know, whatever the definition of talent versus skill or whatever is. But I think that I wrote another book, which I actually submitted to Manuel <laughs> like years ago, uh, <laughs> called called Admiring the Ledge. And yeah, I still have uh, it. I think the book is the book itself is is really cool. I think the premise is really cool, but I think it needs a lot of work. And that is something I could go back and salvage. I believe I could maybe write a screenplay. That would be cool. I don't think I have 
I don't think I have it in me to go back and rewrite the whole thing because the magic of the discovery doesn't seem to be there. I think maybe as a screenplay it could, just because I have much less experience with that. But as a novel, I just don't think the 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 thing that I loved most about Hollow Nacelle is when I got to like the final draft process, like I was talking about with that Ash gets prescribed chapter, there was an aha moment where it's like, okay, this is going to change the whole book. Like this is going to turn the entire story a little differently. And and I I could see the I already had the ending per se, but I could see the connection. I saw the bridge between that middle point of the book and the end. And with this admiring the ledge book, like I already would have the premise too ingrained in my, in my psyche to really have that aha moment. Maybe I'm just being lazy, but I would just rather work on new things. I think. Yeah, that's, that's great. I don't know, man. What about you? I think you should finish the book yours or maybe you should just, or maybe you should use the experience that you have thus far to just, to just perpetuate it, perpetuate it, perpetuate your, uh, your momentum into the next project. Yeah. Are we the first, uh, like, you know, press and small press and author that you've had on? Probably not. No, no. I've had other, other fiction writers as well. So it's, uh, but I would say in terms of like people who operate a press, you are the first, I would say. All right. So Expat's the only like small press to been on beyond contain. That's cool. Yeah, thus far. Yeah. We're we're the alternative, like I think is like what I wanna say to people. Like I think we've talked a bit about it. I mean, you've talked a lot about like vitalism or whatever, just like you know, being part of something cool. I think you said that earlier. Um, like it, it's important, the ambience, you know, like uh, it's uh, like nothing about us is like nauseatingly corporate at all. Like, and uh, like, it would be incredible if uh, we continue to grow. Like Curtis's book is doing really well. And I think you know, we're going to try to like sell a thousand copies and without Amazon and shit. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That imagine is. if we, imagine if we sold like, you know, 20,000. Like, yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. It'd be revolutionary. So I don't know, but no. the big five have a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, they do. But maybe they'll, buy, maybe, maybe they'll buy 20,000 copies straight from expat, straight from the source. <laughs> yeah i mean that you know crazier things have happened well man this has been this has been a pleasure so like just thank you so much guys i really really appreciate it this is one of my probably one of my favorite uh conversations i've had so far so yeah no thank you man thank you guys thanks man i really appreciate it it's great seriously yeah um it's my favorite episode so <laughs> well cool um, yeah no i mean i had a great time uh thanks for having us on uh yeah man we'll keep in touch for sure i feel like i've turned a corner so that's great oh cool. well, that's good to hear so yeah man I'll, I'll see you guys uh we'll we'll definitely be talking more 
Yeah, I'll, see, I'll see you. I'll see you on Instagram and Twitter until you come <laughs> say what up in Brazil. Yeah, yeah. and Manuel, I heard your. Uh, uh, nah, I won't. I won't mention this because it's probably it's top secret. Sierra told me about a reading. Oh, no, no. Like, yeah, that you guys are doing. We should probably let's keep that under wraps. Keep, yeah, but <laughs> all yeah, right, we're coming back soon with another event. It's gonna be great. Cool. Um. Yeah. Peace. All right. Well. <laughs> Yeah, this has been great. Good night. <laughs>